You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So in August of 2018, two hikers, Spencer and Jess Christensen, began what was supposed to be a three-hour hike, a three-hour exploration of the Darby Ice Caves in Wyoming. Has anyone heard of the Darby Ice Caves? Okay, me neither until this week. Um, It's sort of nestled into the slopes, the western slopes of the Teton Mountains, and Uh, It was, you know, 80 plus degrees outside, but as they descend into these ice caves, it's this beautiful sort of experience. And they they were uh, professional hikers. They'd done this before. They had planned well. And, uh, but unfortunately, as they were preparing, they they received some bad information. The, The map that they used to prepare for this trip did not picture the numerous offshoots of the main cave. So they, they planned to go in and sort of explore based on this map they had. It seemed pretty easy to go through and come out for three hours, but three hours turned into five, and then eventually by hour 10, they realized that they were lost in this cold, dark cave. And because of the, the way they had planned this trip, they weren't expecting to be there that long. Supplies were, were there, but limited. Now, they still had hope after hour 10 because they saw evidence of other hikers before them. They saw footprints, they saw ropes, they saw things like that. And so Spencer uh, is writing about this afterwards, and he says, Our only choice was to keep going, so we kept following the footprints we saw until we couldn't see the way forward anymore. Then, Then they ended up getting so cold that they burned the items that they had as it got dark and was night including Spencer's backpack and his knee brace to keep warm, right? But eventually the fire went out. There were no more footsteps, no more trails, no, no more nothing, and they were left in this cold, dark cave. And, and in Spencer's words, he said, Tired, demoralized, and shivering, we stopped searching. You can hear the, the hopelessness there. Now here's the, here's the good news. Because this was a short hike, and because they had a, a, a baby girl, they dropped their daughter off with Jess's mother before and said, hey, listen, if we're, if we're gone past this time, please call for help. And so after two days of being lost in this cave, losing all of their supplies, sitting in the cold darkness, just as the hypothermia began to overwhelm them, Help arrived. And Spencer recounts this. He writes, he says, I thought I heard something. Silence. Then I heard it again. Then shouting. And I I looked at Jess and knew she heard it too. And then we heard our names. And Jess blew her safety whistle and I shouted. Then he writes, lights emerged from around the same corner we'd passed the day before. Reflecting off the water in the cave, we'd been found. Right? You can imagine that moment. Just as a side note, that's why I don't go hiking in ice caves, right? 
but they were found. The light broke through into the darkness. And today we begin our Advent series, this four-week sermon series titled Light Shines in the Dark. And this word Advent means arrival or coming. So it's this season, you heard Pastor Clint talk about it already, it's the season in which Christians reflect with anticipation on the light of Christ that is coming into the world. It's emerging into the darkness of our sin-cursed world through the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ. And as we hear this story, and you could probably think of a lot of other stories like this, as we hear Spencer and Jess's story, it's quite easy to see why the Bible so often uses this imagery of darkness and light. Darkness represents being, what, lost, aimless, and helpless. You feel hopeless. Will I ever be found? I don't know which way to go. I'm sure each one of us, whether we're hiking in ice caves or not, we have those times in our life. Hopeless as we consider our own struggles with sin and suffering. Wondering, will I ever be free from this? Will light ever come? We need light. And light represents rescue and guidance and deliverance. It represents hope. And in our passage this morning, Isaiah, end of chapter 8 into verses into chapter 9, this was written some 700 years before the birth of Christ. And this prophecy is given to God's people in a time where they are right in the middle of a cold, dark cave of their own darkness. They're tired, they're demoralized, they're lost. But through the prophet Isaiah, God's promise of light emerges. That's what's happening in this passage. Help is on the way. Isaiah 9 is telling us. And in this passage, we really we see this theme of light and darkness very clearly. And we see three things that are meant to instill hope in our hearts as we consider whatever those caves of darkness and discouragement and struggle may be. We see three things here. First, the problem of darkness. Number two, the promise of light. And then third and finally, the surprising plan. The problem of darkness, the promise of light, and the surprising plan. So if you look again at your Bibles at chapter 8, verse 22, we see this problem of darkness. It says, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's how chapter 8 ends. Then look again, and chapter 9, verse 1 describes God's people in anguish, and verse 2 says uh, the people have walked in darkness, and they dwelt in a land of deep darkness. So the question for us then, as we're jumping into this book, Isaiah, is what is the darkness here? What's going on for Judah and Israel? And this is where some context is helpful. We're in a section of Isaiah full of prophecies of judgment against God's people. Specifically, the southern kingdom to which Isaiah was a prophet, Judah. And it's because they have abandoned God. So if you were to go back and read chapter 8, you would see this. Uh, You'd see that they'll soon be invaded by this people, this other people. It'll start with the the northern kingdom of Israel, the Assyrians will invade, and then later the southern kingdom of Judah will be invaded by the Babylonians. 
And these were notoriously wicked and violent nations. Yet in the midst of this darkness, God's people don't turn to the Lord. Instead, they, they've, turned to, they've turned to political alliances. They've turned to other nations to help them. Maybe we can find someone stronger than our enemies. They've also turned to other religions, the pagan religions of surrounding nations. Chapter 8, verses 19 and 20 says very clearly, they turned to mediums and magicians for help. They went to fortune tellers, not to the Lord. And so if you want a summary of the, this sort of darkness that uh, Judah in particular, but Israel as well, God's people as a whole are, are experiencing, if you can go back this afternoon and read Isaiah chapter 1, it is a harsh word from the Lord against his people. We read that they've abandoned true worship of God and they've thus treated one another unjustly. They've completely turned their back on him and they've found themselves in the darkness of their own sin. That's the darkness of Isaiah chapter 8 and 9. Yet there is also another kind of darkness in the Bible. If we're to sort of put two categories on what darkness means, we could say one is sin, but also, and this is a result of sin, is suffering. The evils of life in a fallen world. Think of our series through Ecclesiastes, right? The fallenness of life under the sun. Violence, injustice, the abuse of power, sickness, death, and the like. So in short, darkness is sin and suffering, whether it is done to you or by you. Another way it's described in the, the Bible is spiritual blindness. God's people could not see in the midst of their own darkness. They're still relying upon themselves because they're spiritually blind to their need of God. And here's, this is what Judah's problem was. They underestimated the darkness, right? They thought, well, this is, this is not that bad. We can bring light to this. We can solve our own problems. We can make alliances with other nations. We can consult some mediums and magicians and what, what have you. And because they underestimated the darkness, they neglected the light. They didn't call upon the Lord. So they're left to this hopelessness in the cave of their own sin. And friends, you, you and I are prone to do the same things. We're prone to underestimate the darkness of sin and suffering in our world, right? A few years ago, New York Times ran an ad that said this. It said, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. Right? Now notice, I, I always want, before I critique something like this, I want, to, I, want, I want us to see the truth in this. You see the kernel of truth here. We don't have unity and peace. That's what that statement says. There's darkness in the world. That's the acknowledgement. We need rescue. We need peace. We need unity. We need a, a remedy. So that they rightly acknowledge the darkness, but they underestimate it. How do we know that? Because the solution is this. We can do it. We can bring light. If we just find the light within us, we can bring world peace and unity. We can expel the darkness. 
underestimates that the darkness is not just outside of us, but it's within us, right? We are part of the problem. Judah failed to realize that, and so do we. Or I think of the famous Christmas duet with Bing Crosby and David Bowie. I love this song. Little Drummer Boy slash Peace on Earth. That's the title of the song. And they say, every child must be made aware. Every child must be made to care. Care enough for his fellow man to give all the love that he can. It's a wonderful sentiment. But do you hear the same sort of thing? And and the question of the song is, will there be peace? Can it be? That's the refrain of the song constantly. And the answer is yes, as long as we just instill in the next generation the light within themselves, then maybe we will see world peace. Maybe the, the, the light will cast out the darkness. Right? It's interesting as I listen to that song that that constant refrain is so unsure. Can it be? Can peace really come? Even if we do all we can to teach our children to be good moral people, can they, can they actually expel the light? And the answer they have is maybe. There's no telling. You see, God is, in, this, in these chapters of Isaiah, he's telling us something the complete opposite of that sentiment. He's telling us that Christmas has a, a totally opposite meaning. It's not that we will bring unity and peace. We will bring the light. It's that we, left to our own devices, have brought gloom, anguish, and darkness. We are a part of the problem. Romans 1.21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul says that is the problem. Sinful hearts of each one of us. Now, it's quite easy for me, and probably for you, to read passages like this and see the darkness in people like Judah. To look at them and say, really? That's where you're going to go. You're going to go to fortune tellers and magicians. It's easy to be self-righteous and sort of look down on people like this. Or what we tend to do is sort of look at the, the news cycle around us and we shake our head and we say, man, it's a dark world out there, right? But friends, we must look into our own hearts and lives and confront the darkness with honesty and vigilance. When God speaks through Isaiah, he's not just talking to one nation long ago. He's talking to you and I. He's saying that darkness and anguish is not just something outside of you. That all of us are sinners in need of light. Right? So we have to ask ourselves, in what ways are our thoughts contrary to God's truth? That's confronting the darkness. In what ways are are my desires opposed to what God desires? That's confronting the darkness in our own hearts. How how are my actions out of line with how God calls me to live? We have to be honest about the problem of darkness. And a wonderfully practical prayer for you to pray this week as you consider the the darkness of your own hearts is Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Now, 
all of this darkness talk, I understand you're like, Kevin, it's Christmas, man, and you're telling us we're a bunch of dark sinners, right? Might seem pessimistic, I think. I understand that tendency, right? As soon as you got, some of you just decorated the last couple days. As soon as November 1 rolled around, Christmas lights were coming up at our house, right? I love the Christmas season. I love the lights of Christmas and the joy that it brings. But this is essential for us. We have to rightly diagnose the problem if we want to understand the solution. We can't properly understand the light of Advent, the light of Christ, if we don't rightly understand our problem of sin and darkness in our own hearts. As Thomas Watson famously said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. You could say until, until we understand the bitterness of darkness, we won't also understand the sweetness of light that is the grace of the gospel. And this has been God's word to the people of Judah, confronting them with the reality of their darkness. And we just read the end of chapter 8. If you read the first chapters of this book, you'll see how firm and clear, and at times it may seem harsh, but honest God is with his people about their sinfulness apart from him. Yet, he doesn't stop here. He doesn't just tell them their problem. Into this darkness... He speaks the promise of light. So we have to understand the problem of darkness, that's number one, but we also have to see the promise of light. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So verse 1, notice this, some geography here. Verse 1 calls the region of Galilee a place of former contempt and latter glory. It's a place of contempt because this is where the Assyrians... This is where the invasion will begin. For the north, Assyria, in the land of Galilee, then later on in the south it was Babylon. But he's saying because this is where the judgment against God's people will begin, he points it out as a place of contempt. It's where the conquer and judgment will come from. But, he says, in the latter days, it's a place of glory. Now, why is that? Well, if you've read the New Testament, if you've read the Gospels, you know where Jesus began his ministry, then it starts to click. Because this very place where Isaiah says judgment is is coming is the same place the Savior of the world would emerge from. Galilee. So it's it's no coincidence that the place of greatest darkness and terror for God's people is also the place where the greater light of Christ broke in for them. You see what God is doing through Isaiah here? It's one of the, the, the million ways the Bible shows us that God meets us with the light of his grace in the very darkest place, places of our lives. That deepest sin struggle, that deepest pain, that's the entry of the light of Christ. Right when we're sort of shivering in that dark, cold cave of our sin and despair and discouragement, the light of grace breaks in and rescues us. See, that geography in verse 1 is very important, right? 
As Paul says in Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still in darkness, Christ, the light, died for us. Now, as we read on in Isaiah, we see that this light brings three things. Okay, so if, if darkness is, is, um, is sin and suffering, spiritual blindness, we see that the, the, the light of Isaiah 9 brings knowledge, joy, and freedom. Okay? First, we see that it brings the knowledge of God. Now, we actually have a privilege in our Bibles of knowing the exact moment that this prophecy was fulfilled in Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. In the Gospel of Matthew, he tells us, and it, it may surprise you, you might say, well, we're talking about Advent. So as you're talking about Isaiah 9, when was that prophecy fulfilled? Well, it was fulfilled at the birth of Christ, right? Well, actually, no, it wasn't. It was actually fulfilled at the beginning of Jesus' teaching ministry. And that's significant. Matthew 4, verse 12 says this. Now when he, Jesus, had heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into where? Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Does that sound familiar? So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Verse 17. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the prophecy of Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 was fulfilled when Jesus began his preaching ministry. When he be began declaring the doctrinal truth about who God is and the way of salvation. And what does he say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or Mark's account says, repent and believe the gospel. You see, this light of Christ brings knowledge of God. Jesus preached doctrinal truths. He preached the message of the kingdom. And in essence, what this shows us is that if we want to receive the light, we must follow Jesus' command. Repent and believe the gospel. That's how you receive the light. That's how you know God. We turn from our pursuits of darkness to Christ. And when that happens... Paul describes what happens internally. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When we believe the gospel, we come to know God and we receive the light of Christ shining in our hearts, knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. The light brings knowledge of God. So if, if darkness, again, is, is sin or spiritual blindness, then this light is spiritual sight. It's knowledge of who God is. Right? As we read earlier in Psalm 119, the unfolding of your word gives light. I think of one of my favorite hymns, probably the most famous song in the world, by John Newton, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. 
Newton says, the light of Christ broke through in my heart. Because the problem wasn't external, it was internal. See, Jesus didn't come and say, and begin his ministry and say, listen, you all will be able to bring unity and peace to the world if you just try hard enough, if you just find the light within. No, he came and said, your hearts are darkened. This world is darkened. I am the light dawning on you. The only proper solution is to repent, which means to turn and believe the gospel. Then you can know God. This light brings this knowledge of God through repentance and faith. But notice back in Isaiah 9, it's not, it doesn't just bring knowledge, it also brings joy. Joy in God. Verse 3 says, you have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Isaiah is saying this coming Messiah, the Savior, this light, will bring joy to his peoples. And that joy will expand through the earth as God's kingdom grows, as the church advances. Now joy is, we've defined it a lot of ways through different sermon series, but I like to describe it as a deep pleasure of the soul that comes from knowing God. So it's the result of, result of knowing God in a true way. And it's this deep pleasure that can't be thwarted by external things. It's not just thin and sentimental. It is deep, so, so deep because it is rooted in God that external circumstances don't blow it away. And we see this reality of joy all over the Christmas story. Think of Luke chapter 1, Mary's song, her Magnificat. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That's her response to the news of the coming Messiah. Luke chapter 2, the angels to the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Luke chapter 1, verse 41 through 44, this is when Mary meets her, uh, Elizabeth, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby in her womb leapt for joy. So John the Baptist in utero meets his baby cousin Jesus in utero, and the response is joy. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. The light of Christ brings joy to our hearts. And Judah had looked for joy in all the wrong places. The worship of other gods the comforts and security of surrounding nations. And God is here reminding them, listen, all of that searching has been in vain. It's only led to darkness, but there is a true abundant joy that is coming, and it's not found in anything or anyone alone, only God. The final verse of Joy to the World, which is probably my favorite hymn, not just Christmas, by Isaac Watts, I think it's helpful for us to reflect on our own joy. Now, just so you know, this is not a Christmas hymn. Isaac Watts wrote this about the second advent of Christ, and we've just sort of co-opted it and made it a Christmas hymn. It's all right. We're going to sing it a lot this, this month. But listen to, to this final verse. He says, joy to the world, the Lord has come. That's the truth. Then here's the application. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. 
Now, I was, I was reflecting on this this week. Two, two questions for my own sense of joy came to mind. Maybe it's helpful to you. A way to apply this. Am I, am I living in the joy of God this Advent? Number one, do I joyously receive the King? Not just I know this news about Jesus coming to earth, but let earth receive her King. Am I, am I receiving Christ? In my day-to-day life. Meaning, am I following Christ in submission to him? Not as a mere duty, something I have to do. But because he is my greatest delight. Question number one. And then number two. He says, let every heart prepare him room. Is there room in my heart to be filled with the joy of Christ? Or am I filling it with competing joys this Advent season? See, to receive the promise of light means that Jesus is our greatest joy. It it means, as uh, the North African Bishop Augustine said, our hearts are restless and joyless until they find joy and rest in him. And friends, this is a restless season. Let's admit it. There's lots of travel and hustle and bustle of the holidays and work parties and family members that you may or may not want to be around. Let me just encourage you to carve out time and intentionality, space in your heart to rejoice in God, to rejoice in the light of Christ. So this this promise of light brings knowledge of God, it brings joy in God, but also it brings freedom. Look at verse 4. It says, the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now this imagery of a yoke, which would bound two animals together, and, and a staff in verse 4, these are symbols of oppression. Right? And, and Isaiah is saying, listen, one day, and there's immediate fulfillment for, for them, he's saying, there will come a day when no nations will have any authority of, over you. But he's saying, ultimately, there's one day... Well, there'll be no more invading armies, no more injustice, no more sin, no more suffering. And this was inaugurated at the ad, first advent of Jesus when he came. And it will be fully realized, it'll come to full fruition when Christ returns. You will be completely free from the darkness of sin and suffering. Yet, we can also, we don't have to wait to the second coming of Christ to experience freedom in Jesus now. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hands, but you know what it's like to feel defeated and discouraged in your walk with Christ. It feels like a battle that you are losing. Well, friends, I wonder, I'm, I'm sure Christ had Isaiah 9 in mind when he offered us this welcome in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Friends, if that's you, listen to what Jesus says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest now listen to verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, that's the offer of the gospel. That's the promise of light. It's not that you get freedom and now you are your own king. No, no, Jesus is saying, listen, you are under the oppression of sin. You are under the oppression of uh, life in this fallen world. But in Christ, you get a better king who will not burden you. He will give you joy and rest and freedom. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. 
Come to me as your king and you will experience true freedom. And in verse 4 of Isaiah 9, he says, this will happen as in the days of Midian. This is a reference back to Judges 6 and 7 where Gideon was leading an army against the Midianites. There were 135,000 Midianites and there was a large army for, for Gideon, but God intentionally cut Gideon's army down to 300 men. Now, why did he do that? Well, he did that to show that the only victory for God's people is not in themselves, but is in God. So, so Gideon's 300 men defeated the 135,000 Midianites because of the strength of the Lord. It's a way of saying, listen, this is not something you can do on your own. This freedom, this joy, this light, this salvation... Is not something you can muster up from within yourself. It is something that only the Lord can do. And then in verse 5, he tells us that all the, the vestiges of war will be done away with, burned in the fire. Looking to this future day, well, there will be no more sin, suffering, violence, and oppression. Now think back to that New York Times ad, right? Think back to David Bowie and, and Bing Crosby singing. Will there ever be peace on earth? Will the light ever break through? Isaiah 9 says, absolutely, it will. Through Christ, through the light of the world, you will have freedom from sin and suffering. Friends, this is the, this, the promise of light. In Jesus, we have knowledge of God, we have joy in God, and we have freedom from the strongholds of darkness. Now number three and finally the way God brings this about is through a, the surprising plan. Now I want you to try and imagine it's hard to sort of push out of our minds all we know about Christmas now, right? But imagine you are a part of Judah first but also Israel in the north. It's two nations that make up the people of God. One nation, two uh, kingdoms. And you're hearing this promise from the first time. For the first time. And you're hearing that there's a light that's going to come. It's going to do away with the darkness. And it's going to bring joy and freedom. And all the enemies are going to be done away with. That's the promise. And verse 6 is going to tell us who will bring the light. Now what kind of rescuer would you imagine is coming? Just think about that for a moment. Well, when Jesus came onto the scene, most people were expecting a warrior-like king. Somebody who was strong in battle, had a lot of victories under their belt, carried a sword, maybe was a political strategist, a wise leader in the world's eyes. That's what people were expecting. So verse 6 would have been a shock to them. But friends, this is, this is the way of grace. It's surprising, isn't it? So we read in verse 6, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. So God introduces in Isaiah 9 the Savior in the most humble and helpless form. A newborn baby. We read more about the, the humbling details around the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2. Verse 7 says she gave, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in the manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And the announcement of his birth was not to those in positions of authority or influence, but surprisingly to shepherds. 
who were despised in a lot of ways, looked down on by the community. Now, God's people would have read this and heard this and thought, really? A baby? And oftentimes we think the same thing. Not just a baby, a baby born in obscurity, laid in a feeding trough. This is the one who's going to bring light to the darkness? Surprising, isn't it? It's another reminder that God's ways are not our ways. 1 Corinthians 1 says, Paul says this, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The way this passage ends is that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, this surprising Savior, Jesus, born in obscurity, laid in a manger, an infant Savior, is a reminder to us that salvation does not come by any of our own ingenuity or efforts, but solely by God and His surprising grace. Now notice, though, this isn't just any baby, right? As Isaiah goes on, he tells us that this baby actually has four names. Now that's, I was thinking earlier about the ornament swap. That'd be really hard if you had like four names. You'd be like, which one do I choose, salty or sweet, right? Or, or when, we get a, when we get a birth announcement, it's just one name. And I feel like the names keep getting weirder and weirder, but it's just one name, first, middle, last. But this birth announcement, we're told that this baby has four names. Look at... Um, at verse 6, goes on and says, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, here's the names, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, we don't have time to dig into all of, the, of, of the, the meanings of these names, but just consider briefly what these mean for a second in verse 7, because they tell us what this infant child came to do. First, he's wonderful counselor. Jesus is the, the supernatural source of guidance and wisdom for those who are lost in darkness. It's meant to encourage us, church. He's also mighty God. You could actually translate that hero God. This is good news for those who feel weak and helpless, right? We have a mighty God in Christ. He is also everlasting Father. Now this tends to trip people up because Jesus is the Son, right? As we think of Trinitarian doctrine, but this is, this is not uh, talking about Him uh, in, in a Trinitarian way. It's talking about... His loving, caring nature. Jesus is loving. He's nurturing. He's a caring presence for his people. And guess what? He is that forever without fail. Everlasting. And friends, what encouraging news for those who feel lonely and unwanted and afraid. He's also Prince of Peace. It tells us that he will be the source of all reconciliation. He will be the source of inner peace. Think of how encouraging that is to you as you experience conflict in your life or as you battle anxiety in your hearts. 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. But also, friends, these titles show us that this child is God. Because if you were to read on in Isaiah, keeping track of these four titles, you would find every single one attributed to God himself. Just in the very next chapter, God is called Mighty God. Isaiah 28, he's called Wonderful and Counselor, the father of his people in Isaiah 63. And friends, this is the surprising reality of Advent. God did not give us advice for how to get out of the darkness. He knew that would never do. He didn't send a messenger or an angel to say, let me help you find the way out of this dark cave of your own sin and suffering. No, Jesus Christ took on flesh, becoming one of us, that he may save us. He entered into the cave. Paraphrasing one theologian on John 1.1, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's what happened at Advent. And what should our response be to this but to humble ourselves before him and receive the light? Paul describes this first coming of Christ in this way, Philippians chapter 2. And he encourages us, he says, encourages us, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Judah needed to learn an important lesson. That all of their plans and attempts to find light outside of God would always fall short and leave them in darkness. And you and I need to, to learn that same lesson. If, if you want to be surprised by the light this Advent season, then we, we must come to the end of ourselves. We must be honest about the reality and darkness of our own sin, our own need of repentance then look in faith to the light of Christ that we may know him and find joy and freedom in him. And Tim Keller, I think, sums this up wonderfully when he writes, Christianity does not agree with the optimistic thinkers, I think that New York Times ad and Bing Crosby, who say we can fix things if we try hard enough. Nor does Christianity disagree with the pessimists who see only a dystopian future. The message of Christianity is, instead, things really are this bad, and we can't heal or save ourselves. Things really are this dark. Nevertheless, there is hope. The Christmas message is that on those living in the land of the shadow, a light is dawned. There is light outside of this world, And Jesus has come from it to save us. So friends, in closing, as we enter into this Advent season, let's be honest about the problem of darkness so that we can hopefully cling to the, the promise of light 
and humble ourselves, then and only then will we be surprised by the plan of salvation in Christ. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray together.